Yeah, my turn. Uh, I, uh, there's a few of you I would follow. I'm not following John. Uh, man, how true. How true. And uh seems to me that uh, what the world needs now is love, sweet love has always been true. In our culture here, again, I'm old. It's never felt to me like it's what we need uh, more than ever. People angry, frustrated, bitter, distrusting, distrusting. And it's not just the world. The reality is it's what the church needs. I referenced an article here a couple of weeks ago from the Atlantic Monthly that the evangelical church is breaking apart. And the core of the article, and it feels fairly true to me, is just this anger and frustration. And uh, what's missing? Love. Now, we're going to talk this morning about one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13. I have referenced that text because almost every groom and bride wants this text read at their wedding. Those of you who are married, how many of you had this at your weddings? Yeah, I got a few of them. And let me tell you, what Paul writes here about love certainly, 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 certainly ought to be true of husbands and wives. But it's not the context for this letter. This letter isn't about marital love. It's about Christian love. I believe it's one of the underappreciated chapters, and maybe you could say that about every chapter in the Bible, but this is one of the more well-known, more underappreciated chapters in the Bible because I think it's not often seen in the context. We've worked through 12 chapters, so we got there. Paul's writing to this church that's more impacted by the culture, by the gospel, than they should be. The primary manifestation of, and we've seen it described in all kinds of ways, what they're doing in communion even, they're just not loving each other very well. And so seeing this in the context of what he's writing to these people, it's the centerpiece. And if there's a chapter that better summarizes how those of us who love Christ ought to live, I actually don't know where it is. Those of us who have experienced God's love that comes into us, how it goes out. So let's just again quickly review chapter 12. Here's what he said. Anybody who can declare that Jesus is Lord, a miracle has occurred in their life. The Holy Spirit has supernaturally revealed the truth of who Jesus is. And to every one of those people that have had that experience of coming to treasure Christ, the Holy Spirit has given every one of us gifts. But whether we had before we came to faith and God transformed those, or whether they were gifts he came, gave to us after we came to faith, those gifts are from the Almighty God. There's a supernatural experience that occurred, and that supernatural empowering is intended to promote the glory of God and the health of the fellowship and the health of the body, so everybody's got them supernaturally empowered. And then we get to the end of the chapter and Paul says this. You are supernaturally empowered. Power from God Almighty on high. 
And I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. I'm going to read the entire chapter because it is a beautiful piece of literature with profound truth, and then we're going to pull it apart. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. The greatest of these is love. Father, I pray that you would speak to our minds and hearts today through the power of your Holy Spirit who has brought us to faith. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand. And I pray, Father, the truth that you have revealed through the Apostle Paul would penetrate our minds. But more than that, our hearts. And I pray that the love that we are experiencing in you would continue to increase. And I pray for me and for all of us here that that love that we experience from you as it increases in our lives would be more and more fully expressed. Father, we're living in a broken, broken world that has become abundantly clear, more and more clear, that what the world needs now, right now, is love is your love. What the church needs, it's what we all need. So Father, help us to receive it, and then may we be conduits of vessels to all those around us. May they receive your love from us. That's our prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we deal with Corinthians. Let's remember, in terms of their theology of who God is, how salvation works, they're not having too many problems. Paul's not correcting that. I would suggest that the root of their problems is summarized in 1 Corinthians 13. He's been talking about a lot of ways that they're not living this way, and he gets to 13 and he says, hey, here's how it ought to look. I suggested to you last week, I said a parenthetical chapter. I do not mean parenthetical in the sense of less important than all that's around it. 
He's just talking about giftedness and the supernatural uh, gifting. He's going to get back to that. But he inserts this right here, not because it's less important, but because I think it summarizes all the other stuff he's saying. So we're going to pull apart this chapter now, and I see four major ideas that Paul is trying to convey to help us live this out more thoroughly. The first one is this, love. Love, not conveyed, not expressed, destroys the usefulness of any expression of giftedness. Now, he's coming out of this where we have been supernaturally empowered and supernaturally gifted. And here's what he's going to say. I don't care what your stinking gift is if you're not using it in love. Starts with this, spirit-inspired words without love are simply irritating. Now, this is important for those of us here at RCC who a high value has been, is, and will always be the truth. We're living in a world, you have heard me say, where the truth, definitive truth, objective truth, a truth that's rooted ultimately in the character and nature of God, fewer and fewer people are believing in that. So we are always going to be promoters of truth. Everybody gets that? But Lord, help us if we miss what Paul's saying here. If I speak in the tongues of men, and he's talking about the gift of tongues inspired by the Holy Spirit here. If I speak in the tongues, I have words that come from God. I'm speaking in tongues. Or it's actually an angelic language. This is, don't miss this. I could have words that come directly from God. But if I have not love, if I'm not using those words in love, well, they're from God. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, is he discouraging the promotion of truth? He is not. But those words are simply counterproductive. He moves on from there and he says, we can have extraordinary, miraculous, supernaturally empowered giftedness. And if it's not saturated in love, we're useless. I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have supernaturally endowed prophetic powers, I have understanding of mystery that comes from God. I can understand all mysteries. One of our, our values around here is embracing inevitable tensions. He's going to deal with this a little later in the text. We're finite. He's infinite. There's things about God we are not going to get. Here's what Paul's saying. We actually get those. God works in our life to reveal these things that right now are inevitable tensions and they're no longer inevitable tensions because he's empowered us to actually understand those mysteries and have all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, we don't have to live with any more inevitable tensions because these mysteries and this knowledge has been revealed and we have a faith that can literally move mountains. 
You talk about being inspired by God. that have not love. Nothing. If the church could get the truth of what Paul's expressing in 1 Corinthians 13, we would not be as impotent as we've been, speaking generally. And Jesus would have a much better reputation in the world. And astonishing demonstrations of self-sacrifice. So I'm going to tell you these first two ideas in this paragraph. They, I go, oh my. Then I get to the third one. Astonishing demonstrations of self-sacrifice are worthless if not done in love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, empty my bank account, Sell my house, sell my, in our culture, cars. And he's not even gotten to the big one. Can't you wait till you hear this preached at the next wedding? <laughs> and if I deliver my body to be burned... I actually give my life up physically. But have not love. I don't do it in love. Now, you all remember what Jesus said was the greatest expression of love? You remember what that is? Giving your life up for a brother? Here's what Paul's saying. We could actually do that with illicit motives and it not be loving. and we gain nothing. What the world needs, what the church needs. And he moves on from stressing. <laughs> I don't know how you could stress the essential nature of love more than he does. We could give our lives physically and it could be a waste. It's not done in love. Then he goes on to, to give us a whole list. This is the part that usually gets read at weddings. Description of how love looks, but it's rooted in this. Every one of these descriptions is rooted in this. The encouragement of the other person. Now, this has been a big idea as we've moved through 1 Corinthians. Paul's used himself as the example. When we care about God's glory, when we care about the gospel, here's what we're just enamored with. Here's what we're focused on. How do I live in a way that allows other people to see the love of God? 
And he gave us illustrations from his own life, the things he gave up, including his salary. Because he wanted people just to see the love of God. For those who experience the love of God, this is the preeminent focus and goal of our lives. Helping other people see what we've experienced. Love is always rooted in the encouragement to the other person. That's where it comes from. It comes from God, but our desire is that they would see the love of Christ. Love is patient. I wish he'd started with another one. Now, I'm not saying I'm very good at any one of these, but impatience, and, and I don't know about you, but impatience, we have lots, lots of justifiable reasons. Didn't sleep well. I got too much going on at work. Look at all the pressures out in the world. My impatience is justified. Impatience at the core of it is not trusting God with the circumstances of our life that he has deemed in his sovereignty and his love that we should face. Patience comes from this. Jeez, this isn't the way I drew it up. But God's here. And I'm facing this right now because it was God's plan for my life. And kind. And I think in this list, again, if you go back in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about our response where it would not be the natural response. Where the typical response would be, given what we're facing with somebody, to be unkind. I want you to notice all these have to do with horizontal relationships in this. He's talking about how this gets expressed to other people. Does not envy. We're happy for others and the joys they receive. We're not envy of the house they have. We're not envious of the relationship they have with their spouse, maybe what they have with them. We're not envious of the single people. Whatever joys other people are enjoying, we are genuinely happy for them. Even if we don't have them. <sighs> or boast. It is not arrogant. Because our identity is tied up here. We're children of God. We don't find that much joy in other people making most of us. We don't have to go back and tell stories of our high school sports accomplishments or academics and have people look at us and go, yeah, 40 years ago, you were really something. Because our identity is in Christ. It does not insist on its own way. Our preferences we can set them aside for others because we want them to see the love of Christ. That's just not that important to us. Not irritable. I went to get my true identity. You all know what I'm talking about, that thing, the card that you can get and replace. You go to the DMV to get it. You know what I'm talking about? So, real ID. Thank you. <laughs> semantics so I fill out this stuff online I don't love tech I don't love doing this but I wanted my real idea so I don't know how many hours I spent inputting all this information including bills that verify who you are 
and then you got to go to the DMV and you got to stand in line and then you got to bring two pieces of, of, of bills, proof that you live and where you are. So I got two bills that prove where I live. I stand in the stinking line at DMV and you can tell how I'm feeling now, right? You can tell where the steering is going because as I go back there, and I finally get up to the front and I put down my paperwork. You guys, you all have all the paperwork? Yes, I do. I filled out everything. Everything's online. Everything's appropriate in place. And she looks at one of the bills. She said, where is your name on this bill? <laughs> my wife's name was on it. Can you tell where this is going? And when she said, this isn't going to work, I said, are you kidding me? And I look back. I don't swear. I don't yell. It's not what I do. But I was irritated. And that woman that helped me could tell I was irritated. At the core of it, again, is not accepting what God and his sovereignty has designed and I've produced through my stupidity. The danger for us is we can feel sometimes warranted. I'm going to tell you, I did a lot of work. We can feel warranted in being irritable. Paul says those filled with love or resentful. I think this word actually has this idea of holding grudges. How many of you here have never been hurt by another person in your entire life? Let me see your hands. People hurt us. So we're right in being angry. We're correct in having these ill will towards them. Because what they did was wrong. We like to carry that stuff. Paul says, not for those who get God's love. Have we been hurt? Every one of us. But those of us who experience God's love, we let it go. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, any kind of wrongdoing. Because I don't know about you, but when I've been hurt by people and they end up getting hurt, rightly or wrongly, there's a little joy in it because that's what they stink and deserve. Don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Please hear me as we talk about this. This is never compromising on the truth. Love bears all things. I don't know if you've noticed, but interacting with people can be frustrating because so far I've not met a perfect one yet. But we work through this stuff. Now, I want to be careful here. He's not here talking about accepting abuse, please. His emphasis here on love. But I think sometimes this has been misinterpreted as just accepting abuse and living with mistreatment. That's not what he's promoting. So I want to be very careful. He's not saying there shouldn't be certain boundaries that result when broken people continue to live in broken ways. Please hear me say that. believes all things. And I think what he's talking here about is we trust people until they prove they can't be trusted. 
that we don't come to interactions with folks primarily with a cynical and skeptical attitude. That's not how we primarily approach them. Prove to me you're telling the truth. We're trusting. Until they show us that they shouldn't be trusted. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Even for the people that have hurt us. We're hoping for the best in their life. You remember that whole, who was it that said, who was it that said, love your enemies? Who was it? Does anybody remember? Paul's not making this stuff up. We're going to love those people who would actually find joy in our demise and our hurt. We're going to love them. Endures all things. And don't hear me saying there shouldn't be boundaries in life, particularly when we're dealing with abusive folks. But we go on. We forgive and we keep moving. A couple of quotes I love. Warren Wiersbe, truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is hypocrisy. Tim Keller Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Paul in Ephesians said, speak the truth in love. This isn't a compromise of truth. So I've been thinking about this a long time. He gives us all these expressions of what love looks like, but what makes Christian love, the love that Paul's talking about and Jesus is talking about, different? Lord, whatever's going on out there, we pray that you would use these difficult circumstances to draw people to yourself. And if there are believers involved in what's ever going on over there, we pray that they would express your love, even in the circumstances. Protect our peace officers, keep them safe, and thank you for what they do. May it all be done in love. So I think about what, what makes Christian love different than just the love that's out there in the world. And, and, and pondering this over years, I got three essential ingredients for Christian love. The first one is this. There's a cost to me that benefits someone else. It's more than just feelings. It is absolutely feelings. And those who want to divorce feelings from actions and say Christian love is just doing something and dismiss feelings have a really lousy view of what this is. And it's a view I had early in my faith with Christ. It's a lousy view. It's not void of emotions. It's just emotions that motivate to action. First ingredient, though, is there's a cost. Time energy, money, something. There's an allocation of resources to someone else. The second, requir second requirement in my estimation is that the cost is paid by us happily. Time, energy, money that I could use for my own pleasure. You heard that old saying, "Bless, more blessed to give than to receive? Yeah, this is it. 
Those resources I could use for my own benefit, I get more joy out of using them to help somebody else. I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because it actually makes me happier to help them than use those resources for my own personal benefit and pleasure. I think there's a lot of people in the world that meet one and two. Now, when Paul says we can sell all we have, we can actually give our life for somebody else and it'd be a waste of time. I think it's because they're missing the third one. Because I think there are a lot of people in the world doing one and two. Now, the people that get the third one ought to do more of the one and two than the people in the world. You heard me say that? But here's what I consider the third essential ingredient. Our hope, can't guarantee it, but when we give our resources to help somebody else for their increased joy, here's what our hope is, that they will see that what motivates us is our experience of the love of God. A lot of people live in one and two. A lot of people, I think, doing it to receive praise. Now, do I like that other people benefit even though some people are doing it to receive acknowledgement and praise? Walk in most hospitals. At the front of most hospitals, you have a wall with a list of donors. Do you see that list of donors here at RCC? I've been thinking about building a gym. We're thinking about building a donor list. You were supposed to laugh. <laughs> we're not ever going to do it. Does it motivate folks? It motivates lots of folks. Are we going to do that here? Forgive me for telling something. Man, I thought that was hysterical. Anyway, <laughs> these are the three ingredients. Now, we had a lot of people last Sunday, and love comes in lots of expressions. A lot of people that committed a lot of time, cooking hot dogs, setting up chairs, taking down tables, all kinds of stuff, refereeing the football game, Andrew Semeca. Uh, uh, but love comes in a lot of ways, and we saw a lot of it expressed last yeah. Sunday. We are all winners. see love expressed in, uh, in, in countless ways. And did you notice how the camera adds about 60 pounds? <laughs> back to the sermon, the third idea and back to the text, right? Love is essential. Our giftedness doesn't mean squat if it's not coming in love. Love is always for the betterment 
and the encouragement of somebody else. Then he's going to move to this idea. Love never ends. Here's the big idea of this paragraph. Hasn't been this way in Corinthians all that often. But if I ask you the big idea of this paragraph, those first three words, love never ends. He's going to talk about that. That's what he's going to describe to the end of his chapter. As per prophecies, they will pass away. What a wonderful spiritual gift. This is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They have that gift. Folks have that gift today, but they're going to pass away. As for tongues, speaking in tongues, they're eventually going to cease. I don't think they've ceased. I think that's still going on. As for knowledge, that special knowledge that comes from God, it will eventually pass away. For right now, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We have convictions that there ought to always be a genuine humility with our convictions. We don't see things fully. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns and the kingdom is, is consummated, the partial will pass away. Then to further describe this, he says, when I was a child, that's talking about the era where we're in right now. I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's talking about growing up. Here he's applying that to where we are right now. We're still in this partial. We don't have the full part of it. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Thank God for the view we have of Christ. And you understand at RCC, we are committed and will always be as committed to trying to get as clear a picture of Christ as we can. Because for us as leadership, it feels like that's being less emphasized out there than it should be. We're not ever going to give up on that. But with that said, it's not complete. We still have a limited view. But then, face to face, when Jesus returns. Now, I and you, we know in part. But then, Paul writes, I, we, shall know fully. The limits of the, this world, the limits of sin that come with that and our fullness of God, we're going to see Jesus and God and we're going to have a full picture of him. Not limited by sin anymore. How great is that going to be? We're going to see him more fully even as we have been fully known by God. Right now, does God see us fully? Do we see him fully? We do not. Prophecies, tongues, all these gifts. I hope you figured out what your gift is. All this gifting that comes from God supernaturally, eventually, not going to matter. Right now, it's vital to the health of the organization. Then he gets to this last idea. Whoops, let's go back there. You remember he gets this idea from Jesus, right? Love is the most significant character trait of our belonging to Jesus. If we talk about character traits of Jesus, I did this with my second church and sat down with the elders and we wrote out, so what does being a Christian look like? We came up with 78 characteristics. 78. Uh, we could have come up with more. Paul's going to summarize it in three. But he's going to say love is the most important one, and he gets that from Jesus. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, uh, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the most important characteristic. 
but I love his three. This is a brilliant summary. Paul's a smart guy, really helps to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But look at these characteristics. You want summary characteristics of what, what Christianity looks like. So now, until the perfect comes, faith, hope, and love abide. Faith in this almighty God who loves us. Faith that he's working for our good. Faith that out of his limitless love, he sent his only son to die for us. This is the foundation. Hope. Hope for each day that God is working for his glory and hope that he's using us to display his glory so other people can meet Jesus and find the joy that we have. Hope that when Jesus comes back, we're going to see him as he is. This is going to be outstanding. And love. Again, the foundation and the center of it all. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Two reasons I think it's the greatest. First of all, it's just the center of the gospel, the love of God. We only have ability to love as Christ loves because he loved us. The second reason it's the greatest, when Jesus comes back, we will not need faith. Our faith will have been fulfilled. We will not need to hope because our hopes will have been experienced. Now, which of those three will still be there for all eternity? Will there be faith? The answer to that is? No. Oh, that was weak. Oh, that sounded unloving, didn't it? See how I can illustrate how quickly you can talk about this and turn to unloving. Will there be faith in that eternal state? No. Will there be hope in that eternal state? No. Will there be love? Yes. We've experienced God's love now. We don't ever want to diminish the meaning and the depth of that significance. But when Jesus comes back, I think every one of us, if this is statement, understatement, they're just going to go, oh my. All of this comes from our experience of God's love. I, I believe there's a direct correlation between our experience of God's love and that love going out. None of us lives this perfectly, not in this broken world. I look at that list and I don't know about you, but I believe it's the Holy Spirit triggers events that <laughs> happened in my life where maybe I wasn't as patient as I could have been. Do understate it again. None of us are going to live this perfect, but I believe there's uh, perfectly there's a direct correlation between our experience of God's love coming in and it going out. So my first encouragement is always grow in your experience. Let's grow in our experience of his love. That's where it comes from. Don't ever set that aside. But I think it might be good to ask. When I look at the love that's coming out of me, am I seeing that increase over time? If I'm becoming less loving, that's really not a good sign. If I'm not seeing my love for others grow, that is really not a good sign. None of us are going to live this perfectly in this world. None of us. But we ought to be asking, 
Are we seeing our love for others grow? Because it's an assessment tool for us to look and say, are we growing in our experience of God's love? It all starts with that. I'm going to encourage you then very specifically to read 1 Corinthians 13. The whole chapter, every day this week. Take it up and read it. Then I'm going to encourage you to think about somebody else. After you read that chapter, sometime in that day, it's not limited to this. You can express love in every, every, any way you want. But think of somebody, text them, call them, email them, bring them a cup of coffee, express interest in them. We all like people that express their love to us. Everybody loves that. Everybody that takes an interest in us. Because of our growing experience of God's love, we are those people that want to encourage others. So we're going to be looking out. We're going to be looking at others. How many of you have received so much love that you couldn't stand anymore? Let me tell you what the world needs. It needs love. Let me tell you what the church needs. It needs love. We've experienced it in God. We're experiencing it. And even our ability to display it is from his supernatural power, his Holy Spirit in us doing a work. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. We're in a world that is broken, 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 has always been broken. But Father, we've been facing more frustrations and anger and bitterness than I remember again in my life. The world has always needed your love. Oh, Father, help us to experience it. Help us to, to see your grace. Help us to more fully appreciate your sending your son into this world. And I pray, Father, in the midst of dealing with challenging, irritable, resentful people, that we will not respond in kind. Pray that you would bring your love, your peace, your grace to every interaction with everybody that we get the chance to talk to and relate. May they sense there's something different about RCC. May they sense there's something different about us. We believe in the truth. We will never be swayed. But Father, we stand firmly and lovingly on your grace. May we express it in all things.